What uh, level of spiritual development do you have to get to as a Christian for the, for the devil to just sort of give up and leave you alone? Like how many merit badges do you have to get in this system before he will just sort of take his toys and go home or focus his attention someplace else or, or stop coming after you to tempt you to chip away at your faith or your testimony or your ability to impact others? Will you ever get to a point in this life, on this earth, where that becomes the case where you just get left alone? No. Unfortunately, no. And that is what makes times of victory, I'll call it, in life, so important in a sneaky sort of way. I can't chapter and verse this, or quote a memory verse to you, but this is just a general truth from of life that I've been taught since I was young, and I, I believe this to be true, and that is this, trials and temptations and tests seem to follow closely behind high points in life, victories. That time when somebody you've been praying for comes to know the Lord. That time when a marriage that you care about, maybe it's even your own, gets some help. Uh, The time, even if it's like your team wins the championship or something, like the North Carolina Tar Heels maybe will here this week, right, Tanya? Um, Whatever it is, then those high points are very quickly followed by a new test, a new trial, a new temptation. Have you noticed that? I think that that happens for a couple of reasons. First, just in our human nature, I think we are especially vulnerable after a victory, a high point. I think just in our human nature, we tend to put our guard down. Somewhere inside of all of us is the hope, the belief, or the expectation that life will will get some victory that we can rest on. It's almost like we feel like life should work like a sports movie, right? Or an action movie where we understand there's going to be these struggles and trials, but we feel like we, we, we can have this, this victory that the credits will start to roll and we can go, whew, we've made it. If I could just get to this point, if I could just get there, I will, will have this thing, this release, and I can, whoo, and, and we wind up resting on a past victory or a past success. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about that? He told the Corinthians, be careful when you think you stand. Because what? The one who thinks he stand just may fall. The moment I get self-confident, self-satisfied, because of something that's already happened, I'm ripe for a fall. That's one reason I think tests and trials follow our triumphs, because we're vulnerable. And the second reason is related. Our enemy just doesn't take days off. He just doesn't quit. He just reloads. He just changes tactics. And we're going to see that truth 
illustrated in a pretty clear way in Nehemiah chapter 6. And again, in the person of Nehemiah, we're going to see an example of how to prepare for these tactics of the enemy, three of them today, and how to deal with them. Here's, to get you caught up, here's what has happened by the time we open up Nehemiah chapter 6. Um, Nehemiah was the right-hand man of the king of Persia. He asked for permission and was granted permission to move to Jerusalem because he's a Jew and he wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was weak and being exploited and the, the not having walls around the city was a big part of that. So he did that and by the time we crack open Nehemiah 6, the walls are all but done. The only thing that's left, we will read, is the, the gates haven't been installed. Okay, so the the work's done. This is a huge victory. And we've met some enemies up to this point in the book. There's guys named Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and we'll meet a new one today. Um, and they have been trying throughout this book to keep the walls from being built around Jerusalem because they profit from a weak Jerusalem, from exploiting the Jews. They didn't want these walls to be built, but that ship, that ship has sailed by this point. The walls are done. Guess what? They don't just take their toys and go home. They don't quit. They just change tactics, just like our enemy does to us. We're going to see in them three examples of what our enemy does to get at us. And what, what they do is they they sort of get closer to home for Nehemiah. They come after Nehemiah personally now. Now that they can't keep the walls from being built around Jerusalem, they want to try to just control what goes on inside those walls. And their biggest obstacle to controlling the politics of Jerusalem is Nehemiah. So they want to either compromise him or eliminate him so that they can control what happens inside Jerusalem. And again, in these enemies, we're going to see good examples of age-old tactics that your enemy still uses to get at you, especially after a high point of victory, to ruin the name, the reputation, or the effectiveness of a believer. If you want to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 6, I think we're going to read, these, read this chapter in three chunks. We're going to look at one tactic or one strategy at a time, uh, and then we'll, we'll finish the chapter at the end. So I guess actually we'll read it in five chunks. But uh, first we will read the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 6. This is the New American Standard Bible. Nehemiah writes, Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me. Here's what it said. Come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ano. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them each time in the same way. 
All right, that's tactic number one that these enemies use to try and get a Nehemiah. I call this tactic um, destructive friendship. What, uh, what, these, what this invitation is that Nehemiah gets four times, is this is supposed to look like they are now accepting Nehemiah as one of the powerful, the power players of the region. You've obviously done this great work. You come out and meet with us. Take your seat at the table of regional power and let us work together for, so that we can make this region a better place for everyone. Now, when Nehemiah says they were intending to harm me, these guys probably would kill Nehemiah if they had a chance. Um, and that will be threatened in this chapter too. But at least what they want is to to harm his reputation, his ability to lead and to govern and to be accepted by God's people. And this would be a tempting, this could be a tempting meeting to go to. Nehemiah has done this great project, and it might be tempting for him to say, well, I mean, I, I have done a pretty good job here. So I, maybe I do deserve to sit in the seat of power with other regional powerhouses. Or maybe he might say, you know, maybe I will go and try to influence them. Or, um, and it'd be tempting for one other reason. If Nehemiah refuses to go cooperate with these guys, what, what will they say about Nehemiah? If Nehemiah just refuses, which he does, what do you think they'll say? They'll say, this is, this is a guy who won't even cooperate. He doesn't even care about brotherly love. He doesn't care about cooperation. He doesn't care about peace. And so either way, these enemies can use this invitation against him to to turn the tide of of Jewish opinion against Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, it's really easy for him to see through this invitation because these guys have been jerks the entire time he has known them. All right, let's be plain. They do not have his best interests or the city of Jerusalem at heart. So it's easy for him to, to flatly refuse. He sees this is counterfeit cooperation. It's harder for us to tell a lot of times. For you and me, when our enemy comes after us in this way, using a, a, an unhealthy, a destructive possible relationship... It's usually not as plain for us as, oh, well, these guys have been trying to kill me, so maybe I shouldn't be friends with them. Like, that's pretty easy to tell for Nehemiah. It's harder for you and me. How do we tell the difference between a good opportunity to reach out towards someone who does not know the Lord? How do we tell the difference between a a good opportunity to reach out to someone who's struggling in faith? How do we tell the difference between a good opportunity like that and a time when the enemy is trying to get at us by using a relationship that will be destructive to us and and our effectiveness as believers? How do do we tell? You know, there, there are places in the Bible that tell us, on some cases, reach out, and on other cases, be careful. How do we tell the, how do we balance verses like these? The top box up here, Paul says in Romans 12, 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Another time Paul said, I, I became all things to all people so that I might by all means win some. Jesus told us, go into all the world. Get out there and make disciples. However, in 1 John chapter 2, John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James wrote, Do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? So that whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy? How do you balance those two things that can seem contradictory? How do you balance, you know, John wrote, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. In his next book, John said, Don't you dare love the world. Isn't that interesting? How do you balance those things? Well, there are different uses of the word world in the Bible. God loves people. God cared about people so much he was willing to die on a cross. He was willing to put all the punishment for the sins of every person on his son at the cross so that your sins would have no punishment left if you believe in him. But there is a, there's another use of the word world. I practiced all week saying word world without screwing it up. I'm really happy with the way this is going so far. Um, there's another usage of the word world. There's a world system that is opposed to the kingdom. And obviously we can't go in the direction of the world system that opposes Christ and opposes the building of the kingdom. And we love people without going away from the Lord. Nehemiah shows us, even though it's easier for him to tell the difference in which is which, he shows us how to balance these two things and how he decides um, to reject what he rejects here. In verses 3 and 4, Nehemiah decides he has to refuse. And the reason why he refuses this overture of cooperation and friendship, which is fake anyway, is that he has very different priorities than the people who are inviting him to be a part of what they have going on. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem because he was because the Lord set the, the, the direction of his life. And Nehemiah says, I, I can't I can't stop doing what God put me here to do in the name of cooperating, being friends with you. He's not, he's not rude. He's not mean. He just says, I can't stop the work I've dedicated myself to in order to come and meet with you. He tells him this four times. He has very different priorities than these people. For us, we need to reach out. We need to be, in li- be involved in the lives of sinful people. And by the way, when you get involved in the life of a sinful person, there'll be two of you. You and them. But we need to be involved in the lives of unbelievers. But we cannot, I want to say it sort of this way. 
I can't stop moving in the direction God wants me to move in the hopes of convincing that person to start moving in the direction God wants them to move. Does that make sense? Like, I can't, all right, I want to reach this person. I love these people. I cannot, like, get in the boat with them going in a different direction than what God would have me go just on the hope that someday I can convince them to turn their boat around and come back toward God, which is something I've been unwilling to do the whole time I've been in the boat with them. That becomes confusing. What do you mean I should be, you know, I should be loving the Lord? I can't tell you love the Lord. (laughs) That's confusing. I can reach toward people who are stuck in the passions of the world without getting in the boat with them. I don't try, I don't move away from God to try and convince people to move toward God. And that's something Nehemiah uh, demonstrates very well. All right, that's the first sort of uh, tactic the enemy uses to get at Nehemiah here, an offer of counterfeit cooperation or destructive friendship. We see the second thing the enemies try to do in verses 5 through 9. And we'll read those now. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. That's why you are rebuilding the wall. And you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to what these reports say. So, come now, let us take counsel together. And then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done. You are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. There's the second tactic that the enemy uses to try and get at Nehemiah, and that is his motives are twisted. The enemies of Nehemiah and of the Lord's work twist Nehemiah's words and twist his motives. Here's the way it worked in this story. Um, Nehemiah refused to come meet with the enemies, Sanballat and the boys, four times. A messenger comes back the fifth time with a different tactic. It's an open letter. There's something that gets mentioned, brought up from time to time. Sometimes you'll see like a a government official will publish an open letter in the paper. This is where, this is the time frame, the ancient world where that came from. Um, Correspondence, the way it usually worked. A letter would be in a package or wrapped up in a scroll like this. And they would put, you know, hot wax over the opening. And then as that cooled, it would hold it closed. And someone would stamp his identifying seal, like his brand, in the glob of wax. And the only person authorized to break that seal was the person it was addressed to. This was an open letter, an unsealed letter. It just meant anybody who got his or her hands on it could read it. And that's the whole point. 
Sanballat wants as many people as possible to read this letter, and he wants Nehemiah to know lots of people have been reading this letter. My guess is he sent this on a path so that certain people would have read it before Nehemiah reads it. And here's what the open letter says, basically. It uses some very dangerous sources, and you have heard of these sources before. Sources like, everyone knows. It has been said. Everyone is saying. That's an attempt to put pressure from a perceived danger on someone. Everybody thinks this. You don't think differently than that, do you? And what everyone says in this letter is that Well, of course, we know why you came all the way from Persia to rebuild these walls. You want to be king. That was your plan all along. And you want to be king, and you built these walls so you can start a rebellion and be independent. And you've even got prophets running around in there saying that God says he's going to send a king, and of course that's you. And then at the end of the letter, um, it says, So, before the king hears of this, Why don't you come meet with us, Nehemiah? This this would have been a pretty scary letter for a few reasons. First, the people would not have wanted the king to hear about that. A threat of rebellion was enough to get lots of people killed. And there's enough logic in the letter to make it believable. I mean, if you were going to start a rebellion, making sure you had walls around the city you lived in would have been a great idea. Right? And there were prophets who had said, a king is coming to Jerusalem. Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. He might be in the city. That might be who they're talking about. Talking about a forerunner who is coming so that the king can show up. Hasn't been very long since Zechariah and Haggai were in Jerusalem um, writing their prophetic career. And when those walls got built, I'm sure there were people saying, hey, you guys remember that God promised we'd get a king again? Now that we've got walls, maybe we're going to get a king. Maybe the king's coming. These rumors make logical sense. None of it means Nehemiah is planning a, a rebellion. And his motives are being twisted. You ever had this happen to you? You ever had someone misread your motives, twist your words, and start telling other people what they think you're all about? That's not a great deal of fun. It's not a lot of fun. How do we respond when people twist our motives and misrepresent who we really are to other people? Before I tell you how I think we handle that, I want to tell you there's not a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all response in such a situation, but I think there are a couple of concepts that are always applicable. When your words are twisted and your motives are twisted, 
First, be the person you want people to think that you are. Here's the fear. When you hear someone has twisted your motives and is saying bad things about you, the fear is people are going to think I'm like that instead of like who I really am. And maybe we were tempted to try to run and talk to everybody that that person talked to so that we can right that wrong and tell them they're wrong. And The best way to combat people believing wrong stuff about you is to consistently be the person you want people to think that you are. Consistent integrity is a much more effective defense against this kind of thing than running around telling people they are, they are wrong and what the rumors you've heard are wrong. And here's, here's why. If you want people to believe you're a person of integrity and character, be a person of integrity and character. If you want people to think you're a caring person, care about people. <laughs> if you want people to believe you're honest, be honest. That works much better than damage control. In fact, as your pastor, I would recommend to you staying out of the swamp that is trying to convince you know, somebody who is saying something wrong or trying to convince them that they are wrong so much until you hear them say, oh, I have been wrong this entire time and you are right and I am mistaken. That day is never coming. Before my words and my motives get twisted, consistently be the person I want people to believe that I am. And then, when my motives do get twisted and I hear about this, number two, just move on toward my real motives as quickly as possible. You know, that person says what I'm really about is that. I just move on to what my real motives are. I think the best the best advice under normal situations probably is ignore the fool who says foolish things about you. Just keep being the person I want people to think that I am. Don't dignify lies with a response. However, there are times when lies must be refuted. Nehemiah does it here. And I'm not contradicting myself, I don't believe, by saying the best thing to do is, is ignore them and then saying sometimes the best thing to do is not ignore them. Here's where I get this. In the book of Proverbs, two verses in a row. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, because you'll wind up being just as big a fool as he is. That's the swamp I was advising you to stay out of. The very next verse, though, Solomon writes, You better answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Those are contradictory statements. But here's what we learn. Sometimes verse 4 is best, and sometimes verse 5 is best. Probably you will tend to do one or the other all the time. But the Bible says there are best practices in either case. That makes sense. Nehemiah understands in this instance, he has to contradict these lies. But pay attention to how he does it. Verse 8 
he sends a simple written statement to Sanballat. We are not engaged in the activities you describe. You are making all this up. Period. And he moves on. There's no widespread effort at damage control. He doesn't try uh, to, to find everybody that's heard this. What have you heard? Who told you? Where'd you hear that? You don't believe that, do you? What's that person think? There's none of that. He doesn't have time for that. He's too busy moving in the direction the Lord wants him to move. Nehemiah does not try to control his enemy's behavior. He can't. But he does not allow his enemy to control his behavior. Why did they send these letters to begin with? What do they want? They want Nehemiah to stop moving in the direction he's moving and come out and argue with them and fight with them. Nehemiah says, you can't control my behavior. You can say all the dumb stuff you want. I got stuff to do. Why do we let people have such control over our hearts and our actions? By saying stuff that's not even true. Nehemiah, quick, refuting, and he keeps his mind and his effort where the Lord wants his mind and his effort. Last one. The third tactic that the enemy uses, enemies here use to get at Nehemiah comes in verses 10 through 14. When I entered the house of Shehemiah, excuse me, Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, Shemaiah said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they, the enemies, are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent Shehemiah, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. And then Nehemiah prays again. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also uh, Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. All right, what's this tactic the enemy uses against Nehemiah? The third way in this passage that Nehemiah's enemies try to damage Nehemiah is by making it seem like compromise or like sin is the only path for Nehemiah's safety. The best idea is to sin. Here's what went on in that little story. Nehemiah goes to the house of a man named Shemaiah. Uh, Shemaiah is something of a prophet because Nehemiah understands in verse 12 these words that he says to me are. He's, he's presenting them as prophecy. Okay, um, We're told he was housebound. He was shut up in his house. Don't think of him as crippled. That's not why he's shut up in his house because he wants to go with Nehemiah someplace special. We're not told why he's housebound. Here's my best guess. Here's the best guess of Bible scholars that I like the best. How about that? 
He wants to pretend that he's loyal to Nehemiah, but he's actually on the take from Nehemiah's enemies, right? So what he does is he closes all the doors and windows in his house, and he's like hiding under the bed to pretend like he is just as scared of those big bad enemies as you should be, Nehemiah. I think that's what that is. And here's what he says. They're coming to kill you, Nehemiah. And the only way, God has told me, the only way you can save yourself is let's go to the temple, to what he calls the house of God inside the temple, and we'll go inside that and we'll close the doors on the night which they're coming and you'll be saved. And Nehemiah goes, well, now I know you're a liar. Here's why he knows this isn't from God. The house of God inside the temple. The temple was a big complex. The house of God inside the temple is what's usually called the holy place. And according to uh, Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 18, (laughs) that's another 18, Uh, two places in the law especially, the only people that could go in the holy place were priests. And Nehemiah is not a priest. And so what this guy is suggesting is, to save yourself, let's go where God says you can't go. And it says very clearly they did this so that they would have an accusation against Nehemiah. On the other side of this, if they can convince him to go in the holy place, they can stand up and say, would somebody who comes from God to lead his people do something as blasphemous as waltz into the holy place of God where everybody knows only priests can go? That's what this plan is. One of the oldest tricks in the devil's book. And you have experienced this, and I have experienced this, and we have all failed in this area. Satan loves to see us in a tight spot and present a path of sin as either the easiest or the best escape. Now you have to lie to get out of this. Now... I mean, you just, you have to steal. You have to cheat. You have to, whatever it is. I, I like to describe this this way. It's like he wants us to get us in this building and light the building on fire and leave only one doorway open without flames. But it's a sinful path to walk. Does that make sense? God wants us to trust him enough that he will walk us through the flames rather than use sin to save our skin. The one who loses his life for my sake will save it. The one who saves his life will lose it, right? And here's the tricky part about this. Nowhere does God promise that if we walk with him through the flames that it will be painless. I don't want to lie to you. Sometimes the sinful escape is the only one that at that time won't hurt like crazy. What Nehemiah does here, um, well, he says, should a man like me run away? Now, if you haven't read the rest of the book, that sounds kind of prideful. Like, I'm too tough to run away from them guys. No, what he's saying is, I've been telling these people, build that wall with a trowel in this hand and a sword in this hand and don't be scared of those enemies. Remember the great and awesome God who will fight for us. You remember those words? 
You defend your, your brothers and your sisters and your homes and your wives and your children. Don't run away. He said, I, that's what I've been preaching. I can't run away now. And he also says, can a man like me run into the holy place to protect himself? He knows where that will go. It's like, there's, there is no way anyone would ever believe that I'm a man of God if I would go where God said don't go to save my own skin. He reminds me so much of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know their story? Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has built this great uh, statue that he's told everybody, you have to bow down and worship this statue or I'll kill you. And uh, at the right time, everybody bows down except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're arrested. And the king gives them another chance and says, you bow down or I'm going to throw you in the furnace we use to smelt the gold to make this statue. And here's their response to the king. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And we believe he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, we're still not bowing down to your statue. I love that. That's what Nehemiah does right here. Nehemiah can't be certain these guys aren't coming to kill him. They would if they had a chance. They might be coming. But he understands this. In the long run, the Lord would be better served if they kill me for not going in there. Then the Lord would be served if I go in there to save myself from being killed. They may kill me, they may not. But I'm not going in there where God said, don't go. Now, in this instance, that works out the way Nehemiah wanted. God protects Nehemiah. They don't get to kill him. That wasn't true for Paul or Peter or James or Stephen or Jesus, right? He doesn't save the day every time. God saves eternity. He may not save the day. Our job is to go in the direction he wants us to go and leave the results up to him. But in this case, Nehemiah is saved. They don't get to come kill him. And here is the high point of the whole book. This is the, the, the climax of the book. Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul. 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it. They lost their confidence. I love that translation. They became greatly disheartened. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. He stayed about God's work. God got the credit. It was a powerful testimony. Everybody knew Nehemiah's God. Whoever, whatever God they serve must be powerful. Because a bunch of perfumers and goldsmiths and people like that built this huge feat of engineering in 52 days. And it was such a victorious high point. And that is why the very next thing we read, if you keep reading, is that all the enemies went home and the credits rolled and everybody lived happily ever after and there was no more enemies and there was no more tests and there were no more problems. The end. Amen. Let's eat. It's not, it's not what it says at all. 
Immediately, verses 17 through 19, I call these, lather, rinse, repeat. Hooray, the wall is finished. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to my enemies. Verse 18, many in Judah bound themselves by oaths to my enemies. Um, Tobiah was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son uh, married the daughter of the, the high priest. 19, moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence. They were reporting my enemy's words to me as if they were good, and Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem that probably see Nehemiah as more Persian than Jewish. Who are the Jewish Jews in town? The priests and the prophets. And we learn in this chapter, the priests and the prophets are shot through with people on the take. That guy's not even from around here. How's he going to make Jerusalem great again, right? Immediately. This is what I love about the climax of this book. Hooray, the wall is built. 52 days, we got problems still. You know what I like about that? Because it's life. That's the way life works. As soon as I get satisfied of this thing I did that was spiritual one time, and I made this great decision, and that's how I remember that I'm a believer, and that's what I depend on for my spirituality, and I keep looking backward at that thing, that's what, that's what made me a good person, that thing back there. And then one morning I wake up and go, I am not who I even was back then. It's just been this slow slide because I haven't been, I've been resting on something I did one time back then. Instead of being vigilant every day with this understanding, the Lord has work for me to do and my enemy doesn't take days off. Finishing the wall is almost, it's the climax of the book and it's almost anticlimactic. And as we'll see next week, the book hinges right here. Nehemiah stops rebuilding the wall and starts rebuilding the people. And from this anticlimactic climax, we learn these things today. First, remember again, your enemy doesn't take days off. He doesn't care what you did three weeks ago. He's, he's fighting for today. Second, Don't compromise on your faithfulness or God's priorities to try and save someone else. Don't don't get stuck moving away from where the Lord would have you move under the illusion that you can maybe someday later convince them to turn the boat around and head back in the direction God wants you to go. Invite people to head in God's direction. Third, Consistently be the kind of person you want people to think you are. Integrity is the best defense against the twisting of your words and your motives. When necessary to refute, refute plainly and calmly and move on in the direction God wants you to go. Don't let a fool control your behavior. And fourth, remember God will not save you through sin. 
It's just not what he does. Trust God enough to walk you through the flames. Maybe he'll save the day. Maybe he won't, but it will be worth it in the end. And we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you for um, unmasking the playbook of the enemy. And God, as we, as we go through this, as I studied through this, I've reminded of lots of ways I have failed, and every single one of these, are, his tactics have worked against me, and I assume that is true for my brothers and sisters here this morning. God, make us wise to the enemy's tactics, but draw us to yourself as our defender. God, may we trust you enough to walk through the flames with you. Trusting whether or not you save the day, you will redeem the future. God, thank you for your word and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.